Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well and to all of you out there listening today. Brian, did you miss me? Oh, desperately, Katie. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) Well, we're back together in New York, so I have to say for me, it's wonderful to see your face, and I'm happy that they have a big table really separating us because I've been a bit under the weather, and I know you're a bit of a germaphobe. I'm happy to see you and also happy to be six feet away from you. (laughs) Thank you very much. Now, we have a little announcement to make. We're not only excited to see each other today. We're excited about this news we're about to tell you. Drum roll, please. We are taking this podcast weekly. <laughs> we <Woo>! are. <laughs> we are, because we heard from so many of you over the last year who wanted us to put out episodes more often. And hey, we love doing the show. And, you know, we really don't have anything better to do. So we just figured what the hell. Anyway, we're going to do this every week starting now. So we hope you're as excited as we are. I'm excited because I love talking to people. And now we can have even more topical conversations. And we're beginning this new year with Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski. And, of course, that's Joe of Morning Joe, uh, the political talk show, sometimes controversial, that he and Mika host every morning on MSNBC. Joe and Mika are kind of like Charo and Cher, right? I mean, everybody (laughs) knows who they are by their first name. (laughs) Anyway, not only do they share hosting duties, they also recently got engaged after much whispering about their relationship, I might add. Yeah, and we talked about that, and also their relationship um, changing and often turbulent with Donald Trump. We uh, ventured to their offices at 30 Rock for this conversation. Which was fun, even though I barely got past security. It was a trip down memory lane for me. Meanwhile, a lot of people recall President Trump's blistering tweets about Mika and Joe back in June. Well, it's sort of hard to remember because there are so many blistering Trump tweets. So let me just refresh you about this particular one. It's actually two. Trump wrote, I heard poorly rated Morning Joe speaks badly of me. Don't watch anymore. Then how come low IQ crazy Mika, along with Psycho Joe, came to Mar-a-Lago three nights in a row around New Year's Eve and insisted on joining me? She was bleeding badly from a facelift. I said no. I mean, I think that's probably going to go up there with uh, ask not what your country can do for you, right? Or you have nothing to fear but fear itself. Well, I think we have some things to fear. (laughs) Anyway, we clarified the nature of that particular visit to Mar-a-Lago and addressed the criticism that they have faced that they at times have been just far too chummy with Donald Trump. And we also talked about the changing Republican Party, the difficulty of covering this presidency and a variety of other issues. But first, we wanted to get a little perspective on how Mika and Joe got to where they are today. (laughs) 
Joe. It was fun for me, even though I know a lot about both of you, having interviewed you and worked at the same mm-hmm. network. I did learn a lot when I was researching your biography, and that was that your parents actually ran beauty contests oh as you were growing gosh, up. Oh, my gosh, you're going to start so there. My parents <laughs> okay. would tell you that they were not beauty contests. They were scholarship contests. Joe actually was like the MC for a lot of so them. Was, really? That's where he got his talent. <laughs> it was fascinating that, yeah, I when I was— Seriously. So my dad worked for Lockheed. He was an industrial engineer for Lockheed, and just my sister got involved in this pageant, and— my mom started working. Eventually, my dad retired from Lockheed, and they did pageants. And it was the most bizarre thing. But they would go to all these pageants in the summer. And, of course, because I get my type A personality from them, it wasn't enough just to do a little pageant. They actually created, at the time, the largest pageant organization in America. So they would go state to state to state to state. And it was crazy. I said it was like being in the circus. The Miss Universe of its day. Yes, exactly. The Miss Universe of its day, except it was very traditional. Uh, The young women would wear wear chiffon dresses. Their essay was, and speech would be, what's right about America? And I think like 65% of their scoring came before anybody ever saw them. It was a very traditional, what you would expect Southern Baptists from Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi type of pageant you'd expect them to run. My mom threw me up on stage when I was 10 or 11, and I was like emceeing it. Um, <laughs> she had to take me off <laughs> the stage by the time I was 17 because I had gotten so bored with it and was too sarcastic. But it was incredible that I, I, did, I did learn how states were different and how people were different and how, you know, Ohio people were different than even Michigan people were different from Pennsylvania people were different from, and got this extraordinary insight into Americans and middle America because these were not rich girls that were involved in the pageants. These were a lot of girls off the farm or off small towns across America that wanted to go to the big city of, you know, Pittsburgh or whatever. It was a pretty incredible education. But you were sort of, were you a hardcore Republican from the get-go? I was, it's strange. What what would have been the definition of a hardcore Republican back then? You know, uh, my parents were Democrats, um, FDR Democrats, but I grew up in, uh, during the reigning hostage crisis. I was in high school then. Reagan seemed like this strong hand and a strong leader and, and became conservative, uh, became very conservative by 19, let's say, 85, 1990 standards. But it's so funny. I'm thinking when I was campaigning for Jeb, with Jeb Bush, I was campaigning for Congress, Jeb was campaigning for governor, and everybody was attacking us for being extreme right right-wingers. I saw him a couple years ago. I go, Jeb, have you changed ideologically? Since they were calling us an extreme right-winger in 94, he goes, no. I said, I haven't either. But, do, but does not show you how far— Now both Jeb and I are too liberal for a party that in 94 we were considered too conservative for. It's amazing how the Republican Party has transformed. And before we get into that, some more, Mika— Speaking of the Iranian hostage crisis. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Your dad was the national security advisor at mm-hmm. the time. What was it like growing up— in that milieu. In Washington, your dad was a very powerful White House advisor close to the president. You were not a Republican growing up, it's safe to say. Right. Um, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know what the alternative looks like, so I, it's hard to describe how it was different, but I did know that it was a remarkable experience that I needed to try and remember all of my life, whether it be flying in Marine One to Camp David with Amy and spending that time during the Camp David Peace Accords with Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat and running around on golf carts and seeing President Carter in a Speedo. I'm trying to replace that. I'm trying you to get that memory. It. I can now. He's so nice. They were so nice. And, uh, and still are. Uh, President Carter spoke at my father's funeral recently, and it was an incredible eulogy. Um, the opening and of China happened at your. We had uh, Deng Xiaoping over for dinner, so we we had uh, the Chinese leader over to our home for dinner. And during the Iran crisis, I named my rabbit Bunny Sodder. 
uh, that's, that was my, you know, I had a child's view of these things. And so I would just like name my animals after world leaders and, you know, followed my dad around uh, doing Meet the Press, Nightline, Nightly News, and got the bug very early on. How old were you when you decided? Between, yeah, between the ages of 10 and 14. And by the time I was 14, I was going to be a reporter. Really? Yeah. You never wanted to go into public policy, just being uh, exposed to all this incredible... No, no. I loved what this was about, the the medium of communication, of storytelling, of actually technically putting it all together and getting it on the air, of trying to take a soundbite and make it mean something and not change its context. And I found that all fascinating and also something I felt I could do well. Yeah, I prefer um, asking the questions instead of having to answer them. Yeah, yeah it's a lot easier, <laughs> isn't it? Oh, I'm with you. Um, but I also just love it. I mean, and as a as a correspondent for CBS News, I loved traveling around the country to from Clovis, New Mexico, to Vegas, to Cleveland, to wherever to meet people who were you know, parents of bipolar kids or suffering from the latest budget cuts or whatever and hearing their stories. And it gave me a little bit of what Joe grew up immersed in, which is sort of traveling around and getting a sense of what people are feeling about the state of America. Do you feel like you all are too much in a bubble? You know, I wonder about that, about people who mm-hmm. are reporting on the news from a studio in New York or even in Washington, D.C. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's very difficult mm-hmm. because you kind of are ha- hamstrung because you can't get out. You can't really talk to people in a real way. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a question that Meek and I have asked each other a good bit. Uh, whether our view of the country is impacted by being in this bubble. I mean, I went from living paycheck to paycheck for 40 years, 45 years, to suddenly, you know, I'm doing all right. Dire straight saying, I got a daytime job, I'm doing all right. Um, and so wondering whether we're looking at everything through the prism of being, uh, being in a bubble not just ideologically, but also financially and, and in so many other ways. Um, and I think we are. And I think, it, I think it's a constant challenge. The one thing that, that, that Meek and I caught grief from, from, first of all, people on the right during the primary was saying that Donald Trump was going to win the primary, and then from the rest of the media saying he had a chance to win the general election. Now, the reason we said that was because People would talk about how Donald Trump was crazy, stupid, this, that. He's never going to win. He's a joke, da, 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 da. And then somebody would go to their family reunion in Pennsylvania. Right. And come back. And I remember talking to somebody in June and of, of 16 saying, so you went to the family reunion? Yes. How many people were there? 19. How many of them were voting for Trump? Silence for a second. 19. They were all, they were all voting for Trump. My family, all voting for Trump. And even my friends now, people that I have known, and this is the big disconnect for me, even people I've known and loved my entire life still support Trump. And I talk to them, I don't understand it. Because while we liked Donald and knew Donald for a very long time, the second he came out in early December of 15 talking about the Muslim ban, I immediately announced on the air that I couldn't vote for him that I could never vote for somebody that would ban 1.5 billion people for, uh, from coming to America because of the God they worshiped. I just can't square a president using racism towards Muslims and Mexicans, and you can go down the list. But um, the criticism of you guys isn't that you were too bullish on Trump's chances. It mm-hmm. was that after he made a statement about Mexican rapists, after Mm -hmm. he said that he preferred vets who weren't captured, after this big history of racist and offensive comments, you created an environment for him on your show that was warm and he could call in Mm -hmm. and it wasn't often super challenging until, you know, pretty late in the game. What's your your response to that? It's not true. The the people that, it's, it's interesting that people that hate Trump and accuse us of that, are actually being as sloppy with facts as Trump. Uh, you, can, you can look back and see th- um, three or four months in, um, in 2015, us pounding Trump on like 
for instance, Putin. People still use the clip. Do you like Vladimir Putin's comments about you? Sure. When people call you brilliant, it's always good, especially when the person heads up Russia. Yeah. Well, I mean, it also is a person that kills journalists, political al- I mean, right. political opponents yeah. and uh, invades countries and invades countries. Obviously, uh, that uh, it would be a concern, would it not? He's running this country and at least he's a leader, you know, unlike what we have in this country. No, but again, he kills journalists that don't agree with him. Well, I think uh, our country does plenty of killing also, Joe. So, you know, what, what there's a lot, you, of, there's a lot of stupidity that? going on in the world right now, Joe. A lot of killing going on, a lot of stupidity. And uh, that's the way it is. And I also, again, we talked about the Muslim ban. This was in early December 2015, which was two or three months before the first Republican voted. And I'd already said, I can't vote for this guy. So... Again, I think the mistakes we made and it, it, it had to do, I personally think, rubbing first the far right's nose in it when they were saying there was no way he could win the primary. And so Willie Meek and I would hold up newspapers and say, what's today, Willie? And he'd go, September the 13th. What's Donald Trump's approval rating? He's, he's at 14%. Or what, where is he? But that's the ceiling. That's the absolute ceiling, which is what everybody was clamoring. All the Republican insiders were all saying that. All the Marco Rubio people. We made fun of the New York Times for saying Marco Rubio is going to win the. No, there's. I I don't know if I'm allowed to say Mark Halperin's name, Uh, but Mark Halperin and I would look at each other and would be like, "What state's he going to win?" And Halperin go, "He's not going to win a state. Maybe Minnesota." And he ended up winning Minnesota. What's his base in the party? There is no base. So we. I think we rub people's nose in it too much. As far as giving him a comfortable place to stay, you know, he could call in. We made the offer to everybody. Yeah, I'd and, like and, to talk about that. And we said, they, in, we said, if you were above 1% in the poll, yeah. you can call in. We will let you talk. Mike Huckabee did it all the time in 2008. And Lindsey Graham was the only taker we had in 2016. Lindsey kept coming on. We asked Hillary to be on so many times. The only way we could get her on is to agree to an 18-minute interview. We had to get into a tiny little prop plane and fly to South Carolina and land in a, in a dirt field and wait for her in the back of a school for our 18 minutes. You know, th- then it was very, 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 very planned, and they cut us off. So we had candidates that were so difficult to work with, and then this guy who would just walk in the door and say whatever. I also think because we're a little prickly about this criticism because we were sitting there. Joe is the one who hung up on him during the campaign after he was trying to uh, basically run a filibuster him on Putin. We sat there with Michael Hayden um, talking about the nuclear, um, the process of, you know, going nuclear. And I literally said, America, be careful. This is what you're electing if you vote for this man. And and, and I can say even Michael Wolff, who, you know, thanks thanks us in the book and all this other stuff, who who we talked to in interviews, even Michael Wolff said, well, but they remained, you know, it wasn't until the end of the campaign that they turned. No, we were, again, in December of 15, said I could never vote for him. He mocked me for saying I was going to vote for Bush. And then when Bush dropped out, I said I was going to vote for Kasich. And he said, Joe's a loser. He's got no power or authority. All of his people lose. Um, So you said you're prickly about this criticism. But, you know, just rereading some of these articles, I know that CNN reported that MSNBC staff were uncomfortable over the chummy relationship. That's not true. You had calling it over the top and unseemly. Mm -hmm. They said – One person said people don't like that Joe is promoting Trump. Uh, The Washington Post noted that he received Trump, that is, a tremendous degree of warmth from the show and that his appearances often feel like a, quote, cozy social club. I'm sure you Mm -hmm. all read all this, um, or maybe you didn't. I don't know uh, how much of the press you read about yourselves. But do you regret any of the things that you did during the course of the campaign? And I know you guys went to Mar-a-Lago for the— for New Year's, for three days. And I'm just no, wondering no, for 20 no, minutes. Didn't. Oh, 20 we minutes. For okay. 20 minutes, but to that's, try and get yeah. again, that's yeah. the sort of distortion. There's one distortion after another. And my biggest regret is 
that CNN— And I was bleeding C- all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> Which, <laughs> of course, it wasn't. There was a trail left. of blood. I've got yeah. this, I think yeah. it is distortion fed by the president himself. Well, distortion yeah. fed by the president, but also distortion fed by CNN. One lie after another. It's like, Joe and Mika watched the returns in New Hampshire with Donald Trump, and they sat in his room. No, we didn't. We, 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 we walked up there. Shook his hand uh, because we were talking to Corey downstairs. Said, would you like to go up and uh, see Donald? Said, sure. Went up, shook his hand. Wouldn't you do that, Katie? Yeah. yeah. Did you, okay. did you and, ever and, think and so, about addressing so these left. things head on on we, the well, show? We so, tried. So, so, it just so gets worse. This yeah. is, but this is, this is the mistake we made. And the biggest mistake we made was not answering the lies early on. Right. And I, ha- I have a friend who was in the CIA who was always sort of the guy. I go, how are we really doing? Because this guy just has a sixth sense. I said, this CNN stuff, do I need to worry about this CNN stuff? I mean, it's all, they're all lies, right? He goes, you need to worry about the CNN stuff because it's it's actually sticking. They're telling one lie after another lie after another lie, and it's actually sticking. So I finally went on after the New Year's Eve lies went out. I finally actually went on with a CNN reporter. He said, just ask me any questions. And we had about a 90-minute interview, I think it was, with um, Dylan, Dylan Byers. With yeah. Dylan Byers. Well, Dylan reported. I should have I done that about a year ago. He, he reported, and you can correct the record if this is wrong, that, that you had a meeting, you both did, at Trump Tower in September of 2016. Mm-hmm. They characterized it as rekindling a once-rosy relationship. Maybe that's a false characterization. CNN in oh, their article. Okay. Then it was reported that at least Mika did a meeting— during the transition uh-huh. with Trump and that you recommended Dina Powell uh-huh. to yeah. them and yeah. that you did, um, you know, you went to Mar-a-Lago and met with them. Yep. The three days was interview. a distortion. But no, no, but, just, but it wasn't three days. Well, I, would, it was I want to ask minutes. Katie, what of any of that would you not do? Um, I'm not sure I would recommend they hire somebody, I just to be perfectly them, honest. You can. Yeah, you know. Yeah, but you would um, go and meet with Donald at Trump Tower. Yes, I would. You would go would meet with Ivanka at Trump Tower. Yeah, I would and definitely do that. And if Ivanka said, do you know really talented women who could open doors for women and do great things? You might not share. I did. Mm-hmm. But, she, I, but she shared Dina Powell's name, which, by the way, was, we think, in the, the best interest of the country. The smartest thing the White House ever did. Uh, I, I think also, though, again, it was a 20-minute meeting becomes a, a lavish three-day vacation at Mar-a-Lago. Where you're the guest at the party. A guest at the party, which was false. We weren't the guest at the party. We, uh, we came in dress clothes and everybody else was in black tights. of tight. course, I was covered but, with bandages. But, <laughs> the, you know, the next day, it was that we went to the party. We didn't go to the party. We would have never. In fact, it was one of these things, and I know you've done this before, where we're sitting in Jupiter with our friends, and I've got all my kids there. It's New Year's Eve. Mika's not feeling well. I'm exhausted at the end of the year. And we're like, oh. He was obsessively calling. Yeah. Oh, he wants us to go. And Mika's like, oh, I don't feel like it. But you know what? It would be great to have the first interview after the inauguration. What did he say on the call? So let's go and pitch. What did who? Donald? You said he was obsessively calling. He, 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 uh. he, kept, he kept wanting Mika. I had gone over the night before. Mika was supposed to go. She wasn't feeling well. I excused myself after 30 minutes of dinner with he and his wife and a couple other people, which shocked him that I did, you know, I wanted to get up and go home. We, Mika and I don't get out that much. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and right. And so then the next day he no. called and he, where's Mika? I want Mika to come. Why can't Mika come? And so we went over there for about 20 minutes and left. And and kaboom. The well, next day I found out that we were partying uh, with Donald Trump, which I think is just a lie. This this story is illustrative of how unique this president is. I think it's also illustrative of something else. A little bit of which hypocrisy. Is the media age we live in now with Twitter compared to, let's say, 20 years ago, where if you went to try to get an interview with George W. George H. W. Bush, and you went somebody had some bad information. Maine. The New York Times or the Washington Post wouldn't be in a hurry to post it immediately. They would right. call you up. Were you at the party? No, I wasn't at the party. Uh, the party was downstairs. We had to walk through a lot of Palm Beach people in Texas, but we went and met with him for twenty minutes. Tried to get an interview. And then left. So can I, like, show the counter of this is during the Obama administration, and he's a Republican, I'm the Democrat on the show, he's an independent now. 
Uh, but I would often get uh, Valerie, Jarrett, and I would do women's events at Blair House. Nobody had a problem with that. I did a women's event at the Small Business Administration, and the president introduced me. Nobody had a problem with that. Uh, we went and had several private meetings with President Obama, and nobody had a problem with that. I think a lot of journalists do socialize. I think some even go to Martha's Vineyard and hang out with Obama. Well, and, and, and the hypocrisy um, of it all. I don't that, really that I, get it. And I'll just name people who I respect. But Tom Friedman, uh, Fareed Zakaria. Bob Woodward. Bob Woodward. You can go down the list of people that spent so much time with Barack Obama. So Do you much think the coverage time of- with Barack Obama. And we get absolutely massacred for a 20-minute. Do you think the coverage of Donald Trump has overcorrected? That is, do you think? Yes. Totally. I mean, we're over our skis and it's going to hurt us. Well, now now there's all this talk about his mental stability, the president's mental competence. And in fact, Joe, you spoke this morning about, you know, whether the president has early onset dementia. So— yeah, two-part answer here. Yes, we've overstepped. We're, we're over our skis. Totally. We are too, not we, the entire mainstream media, we are reflexively anti-Trump um, on all things. Uh, but secondly, we're also in a very unusual position where we are in the middle of a nuclear showdown with a country that could in several years hit Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles with nuclear weapons. And we have a president who, Meek and I believe, through knowing him, we know him, is not mentally stable, is less stable than he was a year and a half ago, uh, when people on his campaign told me they believed he had early onset of dementia. Now, on, on the campaign? On the campaign. People that were on the campaign— Who are still involved and are working at the White House now? Who are still involved. And—, and- Still feel comfortable working for him? I don't think they ever felt Nobody comfortable. Nobody feels comfortable working I, for I, him. I think what's interesting is— what, you Literally know, not one person? You talked about I can't Meek. think of one person. I wow. Maybe Kellyanne Conway. But but I don't—I think even she—doesn't she supposedly roll her eyes when people mention well, his that's name? that's what Michael Wolf reported. Yeah. And I do know that it's true that she was calling around on Election Day blaming Reince Priebus well, for the— Well, and by the way, yeah. that's loss. another thing. I will say that a lot of the good things about this, this Wolf book is— Things that we said on the air that people went after us for, like saying that Kellyanne Conway was never in a meeting, that she didn't know what she was talking about, that she that that uh, that's all come out in the book. But there's so many people like General Mattis, General McMaster, Gary Cohn, and others who were there because they feel like they're serving their country. And I remember during transition, we actually went from having a hostile relationship with Trump through most of the campaign to suddenly doing what we could do because we were getting calls from foreign policy establishment types saying you need to go in and if he will talk to you, see if you can talk to him about X, Y, and Z. What was X, really Y, and Z? Really trying to talk him into you, like, like or for, out of certain policy positions? Like, for instance, no, personnel mainly. Like, uh-huh. like, you can't have Steve Bannon as your chief of staff. But they were asking you to tell him that? Not only were foreign policy people, Democrats and Republicans, asking us to use whatever influence we might have with him, but you had staff members saying he doesn't have a Hispanic in his cabinet, Joe. What an unprecedented situation where they're it's, looking for to you all to influence his decision-making. I don't know that it's unprecedented, actually. I mean, you had Walter Cronkite trying to talk Bobby Kennedy into running for president of the United States. This isn't as unprecedented. We're all— we're, Everyone's so shocked. We're, we're right yeah. now, we are now knighting, basically, uh, are, are putting Ben Bradley up for sainthood, who we love, Ben Bradley. But Ben Bradley and JFK, please, let's not—and we're no, no, we're not saying that we're Ben Bradley. <laughs> but it has been—everybody's been thick as thieves through the years. And suddenly people acting shocked— That somebody would say, hey, go in and tell him that Steve Bannon would be a horrible chief of staff and it would be bad for America. Or tell him that Rudy Giuliani is probably the last person you want as secretary of state. I guess because it's heretofore been done much more privately. Now everything is sort of out out there. there. The difference, though, is (laughs) if I went in and talked to Donald Trump about Rudy Giuliani, that the entire foreign policy community— would think that would be a disaster for Secretary of State. 
I'd say it on the air the next day. Yeah. We were transparent about it. There was nothing we it. talked about behind closed doors that we wouldn't say on the air. Uh, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back with more Joe and more Mika right after this. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And now back to our conversation with Morning Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski. I don't think I've seen you all since you've announced your engagement. Mm. So don't we look happy? Congratulations, you do. best wishes. I'm and looking I'm at. I'm blinded by the I'm ring. I'm looking at Mika's uh, <laughs> piece of ice there. Nice any job. Jewelry. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> she doesn't beautiful. wear any jewelry. So, um, you know, I'm just curious for you two. I mm. mean, you work together. You are obviously involved, mm-hmm. to say obviously. the least. Engaged, <laughs> involved, and engaged. Yeah. Um, yeah. Does that create any issues? I know, Joe. You've said before that you have to make sure everything is figured out by 6 a.m., but what happens when you're really oh, pissed off at each other? We fight on the show? <laughs> Haven't you I've seen I've never it? seen that, no. <laughs> oh, my God. No, I would say yeah. it's, there have all, been some... it's all actually positive because if we are we fun. having a, I'll just say, terrible, terrible disagreement at night. Oh, you we, mean... Oh. We know... That yeah. we have to bring it in for a landing. Yeah, we have which to. Usually which usually means... We're no up ma- all night. Which means no matter what happens, I have to apologize and get on it because she is a Brzezinski. She does not... No, she does not apologize. Wrong. <laughs> but, but, okay. But, but, the, the, but it is actually positive that everything has to be right by 6 a.m. Because... It doesn't happen that much. Because I'm a politician and I can go on and smile and whatever... Everything, Mika wears it all on her sleeve. We, so if Mika's pissed at me, <laughs> the world true. knows it. So I've got to make everything right by 6 a.m. Yeah. Now, when are you all getting so much married? Fun together? Um, so Who I'm knows? trying to figure that out. So we were sidetracked by my father's death, and I'm so glad that he knew about this before he died. Um, was very happy for me. Then my mother had two heart attacks. And now we're like recovering. But my, my oldest daughter is graduating from Johns Hopkins in June. And I don't want to, like, that's, you got two daughters? Yes. Yeah, I need to isolate that as a very close I'm sure family this has event. Been, this has been challenging, This I'm has been sure. really hard. And it's been, a you know, kind of a, it's been a, a struggle and a process. And we're really happy together. I'm thinking probably... This summer or the fall, but I want it to just feel right and to happen organically. I'm, I feel like 
we've been constrained by so many things. And so this spring belongs to my daughter. And then I will let you know. I'm smiling because Mika, I want to get married. Because Mika says, and maybe you can relate to this. I don't know. But Mika says her oldest daughter is is like the poor girl in Veep. She's the she's and, the daughter in Veep. Where, 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 you know, where, I'm like, it's not about me. Where, where and, she walks into that scene. She yes. walks into yeah. the closet and, the and they're all the pictures up around there. Honey, and she's like, honey, this is not, not about me. It's not. It's and about so you. Mika, Mika would like her oldest daughter to well, at once have a moment. Katie actually would under. I mean, you know, yeah. bringing You're up Katie's daughters like is, Julia Louis Dreyfus. <laughs> yeah, and no, listen, you both bringing are. up daughters is hard. And then if you happen to to be in the spotlight. In in the spotlight, or constantly looked at, and constantly blogged about, and your personal life just thrown out there, you've definitely lived this. Yes, but it can I, be very complicated, and I just want to give them a simple. Uh, this is simple. A, I think that you're right to do that, and this is a big transition. I think yeah. for both your families, we're very and, serious uh, about it, and I want it to be at the right place, the right time, and not overshadowing anybody. No rush. You know, let me ask you all, and then I want to move to this book, Fire and Fury, which you mentioned. But you both say you're over the media writ large is over its skis when it mm. comes to covering this president, and yet you have this very, I'd like to say, strange and unconventional guy. Mm who you believe may not be stable, mm-hmm. emotionally stable, mm-hmm. how do you cover him objectively? It's you know, hard. you have these two opposing forces and his crazy tweets, his irrational decisions, it seems. And then how do you separate that from some of the policy and, and most, things like yeah. maybe uh, loosening regulation and some, you know, the economy doing well, and yet— he seems so unhinged. So how do you manage that? It's really hard because for me, even even more disturbing than his emotional uh, frail, his uh, his mental frailties, um, has to do with his blatant disregard for our constitution and constitutional norms. He doesn't know what's in the constitution. He doesn't care what's in the constitution. And according I think, to this book, he gets quickly bored when right. discussing the constitution. Oh, yeah. I, I, no, it's totally so, so, got to be true. So, Katie, I think you've just touched on the greatest challenge. If you have somebody who is not equipped to be president of the United States, is not mentally uh, uh, capable of being president of the United States, and is is a man who has absolutely no respect for constitutional norms or America's constitutional values, it's kind of hard to talk about the latest regulatory reform that right? he passed. I mean, it, all the, the headlines and all the content of the news coverage is on his latest tweet. And do you think that's by design by the president himself? Yes. If he but designs why? anything. Because, it, because it, it, it precludes anyone from discussing actual positive things that they may be doing. So he's not about, he doesn't know anything about policy. I remember reading. He's not interested. uh, He's not interested in policy. Uh, He's interested in getting the reaction from the tweet. Somebody who's still very close to me just said he loves setting the bomb off and just watching it explode. But I remember, and this was so telling, and Mika always got him in a way that I didn't. I remember reading the Washington Post editorial board interview. I don't know if you all remember, but he started talking about his hands. Mm -hmm. I have beautiful hands. People come up to me and they look at my hands and they say, those are the biggest, most beautiful, strong hands I've ever seen in my life. He also talked about them in a nationally televised debate. Right. So, And he went further and he said, and some people say, if there's a problem with your hands, there's a problem somewhere else. And I can assure you there is no problem there. So he didn't. (laughs) So I said to Mika, I said, read this Verbate. And you're going to conclude with me that this guy is just, he's completely lost his mind. And and she cut me off. She said, he didn't talk about his hands because he's lost his mind. He talked about his hands because he didn't want to talk about, like, the nuclear triad. He didn't know those He doesn't know So he distracted everybody with his Do you think he's that savvy, though? I think he talked about his hands because he didn't want anyone to think he has a small penis. No. I mean, that's important to him, but— he at that moment being in the Washington Post editorial board meeting, anything to kill time. He knew he was in over his head. Anything to kill time. But there is you talked about the Constitution, how Trump has no respect for the Constitution. Mm-hmm. There is a constitutional remedy for somebody yes, who's losing is. his mental acuity and doesn't follow the Constitution. And Michael Wolf says that the twenty fifth Amendment is discussed on a regular basis inside the White House. Do you think it should be yes. implemented? Yes. 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 
Yes. You know. 100%. Look at his interviews. Look at the interview with Michael Schmidt, where he said no collusion 50 times in about five minutes. Listen to how he rambles. Go back and look at him being interviewed in 1989 on the Today Show. And compare that Donald Trump to the Donald Trump being interviewed by Tim Russert in 2000 on Meet the Press. Compare that to Donald Trump in 2017. It's not the same man. It's not even close. Um, And if everybody around him had not said what Rex Tillerson has said, that he's a moron, or what Gary Cohn and others said, that he's an idiot, that'd be one thing. If Trump really had a defender in there saying, this guy is... But well, Sarah every- Sanders comes out every day and says that it's absolutely false, and, false, and Stephen Miller goes on... I Jake can't wait Tapper to read show. their books. Yeah. And they'll all be the ones saying, we were doing everything we could do to save the Republic because we knew he wasn't well, but knew he would never leave without a bloody constitutional crisis. Blah, 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 blah. You know how those books are going to read five years from now. Well, so how about- do you see this playing out? You know, who said that he had a 30% chance of completing Steve his Bannon. term? Bannon. Steve Bannon. So what do you see happening, you guys? I think the Democrats are going to win big next year, I think, or this year. I can't imagine he's not going to be impeached after Mueller ends his investigation and Democrats are in charge of the House. And we'll just see what happens in the Senate. Well, where do you think the Mueller investigation is going? It's going to Don Jr., uh, maybe going to Jared. I'm not sure yet, but likely going to Don Jr. And Donald Trump, I think at the least, probably ends up being an unindicted co-conspirator. And just to follow for up. For uh, obstruction, especially. I mean, come on, if, if he's not guilty of obstruction in this case, I don't know what you have to do. Yeah, to obstruct If you've admitted to the Russians body that you <laughs> fired Comey to kill the Russian investigation or Lester Holt. Yeah. Yeah, the same thing. But what's your reaction to formerly independent Republicans like Lindsey Graham kind of throwing themselves onto Donald Trump to defend him in this, uh, in this investigation and increasingly trying to discredit Mueller as partisan it's and biased? It's sad and pathetic. It's sad and pathetic. Are you surprised by Lindsey yeah, Graham? Yeah, I'm surprised by Lindsey. And so is, I would guess, John McCain is very surprised by what Lindsey Graham anybody, is doing. Has any Republican acquitted himself or herself in the course of this whole chapter? Ben, you know, there are uh, Republicans like that have Jeff done. Jeff Flake. Mm-hmm. Jeff Flake, Ben Sass. I've got to say also. Um, John McCain. Of Can course, John McCain, such a hero. Uh, Lankford, uh, actually from Oklahoma yep. at times, and he's the one with sort of the most to lose. He comes from a very, very conservative state, and yet he'll be the first to say, we need to investigate But going back to Russia. McCain, he said he was voting for Trump even after Trump said that he'd prefer people who weren't captured when right. McCain was running for re-election in 2016. He wasn't willing to distance himself. Tough choices, I guess, that he had to make that I probably wouldn't have made, but he made them, but— you know, he's a guy that has spoken truth to power. Uh, Are you all, have you all been surprised by Paul Ryan? Yes. yes. Disappointed? I, yeah, yes. I've, I've known Paul since he was 22 or 23, and he actually was a staffer for a group that I worked with on the Hill, uh, 95, 94, 95 and forward, and went to campaign for him in 1998 in Wisconsin. And, yeah, I've been deeply disappointed. And, I, you know, for him, he's a policy guy, and he keeps telling himself, I'm just going to keep my head down, just going to focus on policy, and I'm not going to get distracted by all of this. At some point, you need to stick your head up and be distracted by all of I was going to say, it. how can you not get distracted? Because this is all it really is, distractions, right? Yes. Well, right. But also, again, it's okay for him to say, I agree with Donald Trump on tax policy, but I'm deeply offended that he is questioning the integrity of federal judges appointed by Republican presidents simply because he doesn't like the outcome of a case. I'm deeply offended because Donald Trump is borrowing from Stalinist terminology, calling the media enemies of the state. I'm deeply disturbed uh, that, that he's attacking a Vietnam veteran like Bob Mueller, who guided America— you know, through the the days following September 11th. 
I'm not sure how you remain silent on those things. If you're Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell, I will never understand. And I, will, I just will never buy whatever their explanation is. I know they don't care, but a lot of Americans do. And the conventional Republican position seems to be, well, I like the policies, but I'm uncomfortable with the tweeting or whatever. Mm-hmm. But to that point, do you think the policies have been good? Do you think they've lived up to sort of the populist promise of Trump's no. campaign? Well, look at the tax plan. How yeah, could you? That's I totally mean, the, the fact that, that Donald Trump, everything that Donald Trump campaigned on regarding working class Americans, it, it's, it's been a lie. It, it's just... You know, he's he said the rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poor, the middle class was getting left he's behind. A Democrat. Hillary Clinton was, you know, Hillary Clinton was uh, was a captive of Wall Street. He was going to do a massive infrastructure. He's going to do a massive infrastructure uh, uh, program. He was going to save health care. He says healthcare. he's still going to do that. That's going to be easy, Brian. Yeah, and he was oh, going to yeah, save health care. Uh, he, he, if you look at the health care, his health care proposal uh, that he supported, and you look at the tax proposal that got passed. They are as tilted towards the richest of rich as any Republican. Mika, where do you see all this heading? Um, Hmm. Do you think, uh, as Joe does, that the the Democrats are going to make big, big gains in the midterm? And do you think that— what do you think when you look ahead to 2020? I'm very worried. Um, Joe has eternal optimism— about the foundations of our democracy. And I grew up in a home uh, with two parents that fled Hitler from different countries and um, a father who was extremely uh, engaged in foreign policy and uh, Soviet-American relations or lack thereof and China and spying. And he was even warning me 10 years ago that the Russians were listening to our phone calls um, and I really think this is how it all begins. I think that we are lulling ourselves into a dangerous state of denial that this is okay, what's happening. And I think that we've got the president cornered. It appears the president's the only one who is seeming to be an outlier and everyone else around him might be okay, but that's not enough because if he's questioning our judiciary system, if he's insulting the FBI and the CIA, if he's constantly attacking the media, all you need is one or two people in one of those branches of government or one of those entities to feel the need to protect him or herself and to perhaps go off the grid as well. Well, and one would argue you do have those people in the DOJ, right? Well, the problem is what, what is happening to our system? and our balance of power, and could it crumble? I think what we have is strong and important, but it's not infallible. It's to be respected. It's to be held precious. And he's just running around with a machine gun, uh, shooting up our entire sort of democratic system. Yeah, well, do you think that these— Staffers that have been described in Fire and Fury, 100% of them who do not have confidence in him, mm-hmm. at some point will people, even like Lindsey Graham, feel it's their patriotic duty to take a stand? I mean, how do you get the ball rolling? That's, well, the, that's the part that now? your column By last now. week why was amazing. They? Was it last week about the compliant Congress that everything was prepared for? Uh, you know, in, in Oh, yeah, that, that our founders actually anticipated a, point. a tyrannical president. But they never let their imaginations be darkened by the prospect of a tyrannical president and a compliant Congress. What's going on with these Republicans? They thought there would be checks and balances that would always hold a tyrannical president in check. Well, after 2018, will there be, Joe? I hope. I certainly hope. Is that the key to all of this? Yes, it is. I mean, the key to all of this, and I'm not just saying for Democrats to be elected, if Republicans want to run in primaries that will challenge other Republicans who are compliant to a, a, a president who is an autocrat and waiting. Well, good luck to them. Good luck to them yeah. and are to independents. It doesn't just have to be Democrats. But right now, I think for the first time in Benjamin Wittes, who writes for Lawfare, has basically said whatever differences Democrats and independents and Republicans have with each other, put it to the side yeah. for now. Somebody may vote for the, the tax cut. Fine. 
just let it go. There's a much bigger issue here, and that is preserving the constitutional norms and values that we've had for 240 years. So this is the most important political year of our, of our lives, other than maybe, you know, 1968. Let's um, wrap things up. And Mika, I, I don't want you to get away before talking a little bit about sort of this seismic shift we're witnessing, it, not only with the Me Too movement, mm-hmm. but with this reckoning, if you will, yeah. and gr- deeper awareness of women in the workplace. That's something that you, I know, have been writing about, yeah. with Know Your Value, with Pay Equity, um, with Opportunity. That's yes. the subject of one of my upcoming National Geographic Hours awesome. is on gender inequality in Hollywood and Silicon Valley specifically. And I'm just curious about your thoughts as you watch the Golden Globes, you watch these women in black versus men in black <laughs> talking about these issues in a very serious and uh, passionate way. Well, I think that is exactly what we need to keep giving voice to people who need a voice, is to just give voice to the issue and to have more women speaking out. I think that there are treacherous times ahead with this. We have to be really careful about due process and about this becoming such an uh, almost um, an imbalanced witch hunt that then women are sort of seen as like, oh, my gosh. So you're concerned about a backlash. Oh, I'm definitely concerned about a backlash. But let me tell you what I'm excited about. And that is that I think immediately— we're seeing a culture change where men and women are really thinking about how they behave in the workplace. Men and women. This is about men and women. It's not just about men. And um, we're having an honest conversation. Often the conversation gets very treacherous. I've stepped in it a few times, but I want to keep having it because I want women to be hired for the same reason that men should be hired, that they're good people with good values who are really good at what they do. And that should be what we are looking for. It shouldn't be certain types of men and certain types of women that catch the eye. And you know in the TV business, oh, my God, I've been stepped over by, like, three beauty queens in my in my entire career for, like, jobs I thought I had. And, you know, people get hired for the wrong reasons. It sets up a terrible dynamic. And I feel like we have killed a lot of that dynamic in the past three months. And... Coming close to home with things that have happened with people that we know at this network, you know, I think we've all learned as a company, as a member of the news media, that sometimes we're a part of it if we laugh at the jokes. Like laughing about a man's bad behavior is saying it's okay. Or being a part of the joke about someone who's, you know, constantly hitting on women or cheating or sleeping around. It's not funny. And I I kind of feel like I learned a little bit about myself in this. I've been a victim of sexual harassment, a victim of sexual assault. I have my um, opinions as to how deeply I think my career was impacted by that, and I don't think it was. But I also think taking part in the acceptance of behavior is something we're not going to do anymore. And it's going to be hard getting there. But we all kind of learned like, oh my gosh, the things that we just accepted, the rules have changed. And that means all of us have to behave a certain way, um, a better way. And I think it involves kind of a constant conversation and a recognition that this is a universal problem that involves everybody, men and women. I think there haven't been strict guidelines or at least communicated guidelines to employees at these media organizations um, for decades, at least as long as I've worked in television. Um, I don't think there were any clear sort of a code of conduct, for example. There was never a system in place where if you were an aggrieved person or felt you had been wronged, there was a place you could go and an HR department would actually listen to you and not protect the powerful in the dynamic. Well, and also, what what about creating a workplace where it is prevented? And it it is an issue of prevention. Code of conduct can be about prevention. I'm re-releasing Knowing Your Value in the fall, and I'm doing an addendum, and I interview a lot of different 
top companies about what they think the rules of the road are in terms of working from open door policies to looking at, you know, looking at your corporate structure, how many women are at the top, how many women are leaving, how many women are not coming back. Well, women in leadership positions is so key, you know, after the Harvey Weinstein uh, scandal broke. I took a look. I did a survey of women in top positions in TV news, uh-huh. both in cable and network and broadcast. And I was stunned when I looked at presidents, bureau chiefs, executive producers, yep. how few and far between mm-hmm. uh, there were women in those roles. And I'm talking about women in really decision-making positions. And I think that would go a long way to changing things. But I also think when you consider 50% of the people I read somewhere meet their significant other Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. the workplace, case in point, looking at you two right now, how do you navigate that in terms of what relationships are permissible and what aren't? I don't and know. so these are things that are really going to have to be investigated and right. and examined in a very real way without turning every corporation into big brother. These are really challenging issues, I think. Well, that's why because I think now a consensual relationship, if the power dynamic is unequal, mm-hmm. is not is even considered issue. consensual. Right. 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 No, and and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes if the power dynamic is so unequal, it's impossible. Right. But I do think that's where you really have to look at prevention. A code of conduct is fantastic if it, if it helps you walking in the door. It's like I'm, I want, and what, what I'm writing is what I want to get to every young man and young woman as they go off into the workplace and become leaders. Because there's a way you need to know about how you conduct yourself around men and women. What's okay? What's not okay? What's a joke? What's not? I mean, this is what we're learning in a very kind of, you know, rip Real off the band way. Rip off the band-aid kind of way, uh, for sure. But it's getting women in powerful positions, retaining women, and leveling the playing field financially. That will ultimately solve the problem. Thank you so much for, for doing our podcast. I read your inscription to, uh, in the Fire and Fury book. This oh. was some investigative journalism say? right here. What did say? <laughs> I'm nosy, you guys. Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah. For Joey, your dad is the man. Oh, well, that's you, sweet. You just messed up his birthday present. But okay. oh, <laughs> When's his birthday? December, I'm lying. Uh, I just to make you feel bad for snooping around my office. Oh, my gosh. So, he'll be, but he will be very excited about that. Yeah, well, yeah. you tell him I said hi and happy birthday okay. whenever it is. <laughs> whenever it is. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. A big thank you to Mika and Joe and the whole staff of Morning Joe for hosting us at Rockefeller Center, home of NBC Studios, my old stomping grounds. And of course, thank you to our production team, our producer, Gianna Palmer, our engineer, Jared O'Connell, our assistant producer, Nora Ritchie. Thanks are also in order for our social media queen, Allison Bresnick. Is that a little negative to say queen? I don't know. And Emily Bina of Katie Couric Media. I like when people call me queen. My assistant, <laughs> Beth Demas, frankly, keeps my life in order, and it's pretty chaotic, so needless to say, she has a very hard job. Mark Phillips wrote our theme music, and Brian and I are the show's executive producers. Please stay in touch. Email us with your comments, questions, feedback, and guest ideas at comments at currickpodcast.com or leave us a voicemail at 929-224-4637. Might end up on the show. And search Katie Couric and you'll find me all over social media, particularly Instagram these days. If you've been following my stories on Instagram, you know I've been binge watching The Crown, which is so good. I make all these editorial statements like I showed somebody and I was like, oh, and that mad, red, angry face emoji. I didn't like this person. I'm not going to give it away because I don't want to spoil things. You know who I I, 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 First of all, (laughs) I'm watching The Crown. (laughs) I think we watched the same episodes at the same time without knowing, which is a little scary. And second, I follow all of your Instagram stories. (laughs) Oh, okay. It's like a half hour of my day I can never get back. (laughs) I'm so sorry, but I really hated when she looked at the queen, and that's all I'm going to say. Yeah, it's a great show. Anyway, I tweet from the handle at GoldsmithB, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. It feels good to say it, right, Brian? It sure does. And we'll be chatting with Maggie Haberman. Uh, Maggie is the White House correspondent for The New York Times. And she is one badass, and I can't wait to talk to her. Plus, we'll have another surprise announcement next week. Brian, are you pregnant? (laughs) 
Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.